Very good. Well, we're delighted to be here this morning. You know, as you were talking about our son, when he was in our youth department, they took a missions trip. You'll laugh at where they went, but they took a missions trip to Fiji. I know that sounds like a resort and a vacation, but my son and a handful of teenagers, and Amber was one of those teenagers that went to uh, Fiji. Prior to going to Fiji, they did a, an intensive training trip through the Joshua Tree National Park on foot, backpacking, and all of that. So they, were, they learned how to work together as a team and all, and then they went to Fiji. I still have that picture. Wonderful memories. Well, we are delighted to be here this morning. I just love your pastor. I love this place. I appreciate so much your pastor's heart. One of my delights is watching him interact with people. I know that sounds a little creepy. I don't watch him like this, but I just observe, stand by and observe. And what a wonderful pastor's heart. What a wonderful pastor's heart. And uh, it's been a delight to get to know him uh, through our times together. I was here just recently for school chapels for an emphasis there. That was a, a fun time, man. We had a blast during that time. And then I think before that, we were here for a, a Halloween um, time. And Kurt Skelly was also here at that time. So that was, that's fun. I think I preached before him. He preached after me. So I tell folks I opened for Kurt Skelly. But there was a time at a camp where he preached and then I preached. And then I told folks, well, Kurt Skelly opens for me. So it all works out well. If you would take your Bible this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, that gospel written by the converted tax collector, the Gospel of Matthew. And in chapter 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you enter into a passage of Scripture typically called the Sermon on the Mount. We believe these truths were preached several times, but this particular occasion where Matthew records it, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And as he records the Sermon on the Mount, it starts off with those wonderful Beatitudes where it says, Blessed, blessed, blessed. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Sermon on the Mount, as you move through that, sometimes people mistakenly think, these are the rules for how to get to heaven. Well, I tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. That is, there's nothing like that that exists in the Bible. There is not a set of rules on how to get to heaven. To get to heaven, you've got to be as perfect as God is. To get to heaven, you, got, you have to be as righteous and holy as He is. And we fall far short of that standard. So, so our wonderful Heavenly Father sent us a substitute to die in our place, the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute who died in our place. But these, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, are principles for Christian living. Principles for Christian living. You might even call it kindergarten Christianity. Yet when you look at the principles, they're so much higher than the average typical Christian experience or pursuit. They're just so much higher. And yet this is what we are able to pursue by the grace of God. You'll notice the word blessed in verse 3, blessed in verse 4. And sometimes in the margin of our Bibles, it'll say something like happy. And there are times where blessed can be a synonym with happiness. But in this particular case, that word is not a word that's synonymous with happy. Because happiness always depends on chance. Happiness depends on the circumstances that are, that are around us. Happiness can change with the weather. Happiness can change with the first scratch on a new car. Happiness can change with the numbers on the scale. 
Happiness can change with just on just a turn of a dime, on just a turn of events. But blessedness is rooted in the word bliss, bliss, bliss that chance cannot change, bliss that 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 uh, that chance cannot touch, that change cannot touch, bliss that is rooted in a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you come to verse six or verse thirteen. Where the Bible says, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You and I understand that the key component to salt's effectiveness is its distinctiveness. Once it loses that distinctiveness, it's rubbish. We live in a, in a culture these days that seeks to get Christianity to blend in with the culture and not be distinct. And I wonder if we don't see some successfulness in that. I wonder if the, if the reason why in many quarters the church has been deemed non-essential, I wonder if it's just because the church has become so much like the world that it's lost its distinctiveness. It's just seen as nothing more than to be tossed out and to be trodden underfoot. We would say, oh, we're so persecuted when it may be that the Bible's just uh, allowing us to see exactly what it declares. That when we lose our distinctiveness, we become trodden underfoot of men. The Bible continues on year, the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Don't you love that? Verse 14, the plural, ye. Ye, it's a group. Anytime in our Bible when we see ye, you, you all, it's all referring to a group, a plural. When you see thee, thou, or thine, it's always a singular reference. A singular. That's why it's amazing to me Jesus said to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. While the conversation was with Nicodemus, there was a whole group of people that Nicodemus ran with that needed to be born again. Nicodemus sensed there was more to his rituals. There had to be more than the rituals. There had to be more than the pageantry, more than the regimen. There had to be more. And Jesus looked into his heart and saw that yearning and said, here's the more that you need, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And the Bible here says that you're the light of the world. Collectively, as a church, we're the light of the world. In our local church, a light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. While the sun beams off of its walls during the daytime, and at night when the torches are lit to light the city, the collective glow, that amber glow, casts its glow against the canopy of the sky. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And so, the, so Jesus is going from something that's broadened out to something a little bit narrower. He says, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. When a person lights a candle, in those days they wouldn't say, all right, get me a, a clay pot, a bushel size. We're going to put it over the candle and obscure the light. We obscure the light many times, do we not? We obscure the light with frustration, with impatience. We obscure the light with self-centeredness, all sorts of things. We hide this gospel light under a bushel. And then we come to verse 16. Let your light so shine before men. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Years ago, I got some earbuds. I wanted to pair them with my phone. Earbuds to pair with my phone, my smartphone. 
And in order to do that, I had to press a button on the earbuds and then I would go to my settings in my phone. I would go under devices. I know this is not a tutorial, but I would go to devices, the list there. It would show that my earbuds were discoverable. I would press on that. Boom, like magic, my earbuds would be paired with my smartphone. The smartphone I have now, I can make it into a Wi-Fi hotspot. I go to the settings, there's a little button, I move the little button, and it says this, it says these words, your phone is now discoverable as Rob Watkins' iPhone. Discoverable, I love that word, that whole idea, discoverable. Because I submit to you that our God is making himself discoverable. He does this in three ways. First of all, he does it through what we would call general revelation. God is making himself discoverable through general revelation. Now, in general revelation, that means this, that God is making himself discoverable through what he has created. God makes himself discoverable through creation. Why, if a man never saw a Bible, if a man never heard a preacher, if a man never read a tract, all he had to do was look around at what God had created. According to Romans chapter 1, that man would come to two conclusions. Number one, he would conclude there is a God. There is a designer. There is a God. Number two, he would conclude this God is powerful look at what he has created. And so he may not know God's name. He may not know of God's plan of salvation. He may not know of a Bible, but two things that man can know from what he sees, and that is that God is and that God is powerful. And the reason why man is guilty is because instead of worshiping that God who made all those things, man worships the creature. Man worships nature, man worships the trees, man worships the stars, the moon, the, the sun, the planets, or man worships himself. Everything except the creator. That's why man is guilty. He's guilty because he rejects the revelation of God that he has. So God has revealed himself generally through creation. He's also revealed himself generally through our conscience. Romans chapter 2 deals with this. There is a law written on our hearts. A man may never possess a Bible that has God's law in it, but God has written a law on man's hearts. And when man violates that law, his conscience pesters him, bugs him, pokes him. And that conscience resonates with everything that man sees around him that God has made. So that the Bible is true when it says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You look at the intricacies of a simple plant. You look at the intricacies of a human eye. You look at the, the, the fact that the planet and the moon and the stars are all moving in precision. You just can't help but understand what a four-year-old can understand. And that is there must be a designer. This didn't happen by accident. A four-year-old doesn't walk into their room when they're told to clean it and say, well, I'll just wait a, a few years. It'll clean itself. He's got to put things in order. If, if somebody walks into that room and everything's in order, you know somebody did it, and it probably wasn't the four-year-old, but you know somebody put things in order. So God is making himself discoverable through general revelation, through what he has made, creation, and through man's conscience. But we constantly violate our conscience. Even though we know our conscience is going to poke us and bug us, we still violate that conscience. 
But God doesn't leave us just with general revelation. He also makes himself discoverable through special revelation. God makes himself discoverable through, number one, the written word, the word of God. God makes himself known through the Bible. Why, it's there we learn his name and names. It's there we learn his character. It's there we learn the principles that he has put into place, such as whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Not just in the agricultural realm, but also in the moral realm. And so we learn of the nature of God. We learn that God is compassionate. We learn that he is merciful. We learn that he is also holy and that he is just. We learn that he has given commands. We learn all sorts of things about the, the character of God. So we have the special revelation through the word written, but we also have special revelation through the word incarnate. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was who is the word incarnate. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You want to know what God is like? Study the life and ministry and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what God's heart is like? See what the heart of Jesus is like. Why in the Old Testament, God would talk about his compassion. People say, oh, no, it's all thunderbolts and or it's all lightning bolts and thunderclaps, but, but God does talk about his mercy and his compassion and his long suffering in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you see the tear run down, the tears run down God's cheek as he laments over a wayward Israel. Jesus is God's special revelation to us, the word incarnate. And at each step of the way, I mean, I believe, I can't help but believe if a man responds to the revelation that he sees around them of what God has made, that God will increase that man's understanding. That if a man understands that there is a God that he's going to be accountable to and, and he wants to be right with that God, I can't help but believe that God will bring someone into his path. The book of Acts gives us an example of that as Peter has this vision of a, of a, of a, fella, of a, of a sheet of food being lowered down. There were clean food, there's clean food and unclean food and he's told to eat and in that vision he's told to, in so many words, he's told to take the gospel to the Gentiles and there were Gentiles wanting to hear the gospel. I can't help but believe God, in, as a man responds, that God would bring more light to that man. But the reason why, again, we're guilty is because our sin has separated us from God from this God who made all things, from this God who has given us a conscience, from a God who's revealed himself to us specifically through the Bible and specifically through his son. So we have general revelation. We have special revelation. God is making himself discoverable. He has hidden himself in plain sight. Years ago, my, my wife and I, we had our two, youngest, our two oldest children. They were then the youngest. Uh, we were at my in-laws. And my father-in-law wanted to play hide-and-seek with the kids. So I counted with my kids. I think they were about five and three at the time. So I'm counting with them. But I'm also watching to see where grandpa's hiding. And I tell you what, he was not a very good hider. He went into the living room and got, and got on all fours behind the, the uh, recliner in the living room. But the thing is, the only thing hidden by the recliner were his head and his shoulders. Why his whole backside, his rump was sticking out from behind the recliner. I said, Psh. it's like he's hiding to be found. And my, my kids and I were done counting and I sent them looking for grandpa. My suspicions were confirmed. They readily found him. But boy, when they did, that's when the laughter began. That's when the tickling began. That's when the memories were made. And I tell you, God has hidden himself in plain sight. That if a man would look and find him, that's when the peace would begin. That's when the joy would begin. That's when the life would change. 
God has revealed himself through general revelation, through special revelation. But I submit to you, God is revealing himself. God is unveiling himself. God is making himself discoverable through a third type of revelation. And this is where you and I come into play. Our heavenly father is making himself discoverable through what we'll call relational revelation. Relational revelation. If you've ever sat in a doctrine class or a theology class, if you ever sat through the first ones, one of the first things we talk about is the general revelation and the special revelation as to how God's revealing himself. But we don't get into this third type. But Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Look what the Bible says. For it says, you're the salt of the earth. Excuse me, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 is a mandate. It is in the imperative. It is a command. It's not an option. It's a command for everyone that would be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And in this verse, we have a threefold plan that God has for making himself discoverable today, for making himself discoverable where you work, to make himself discoverable in the neighborhood where you live, to make himself discoverable in your home, a threefold plan. It's the place it's the program or process and it's the, it's the purpose. The place, the process, and the purpose. Notice, first of all, let your light so shine before men. That's the place, before men. In other words, when we get saved, we don't go cloister ourselves off somewhere away from the world that we're supposed to reach with the gospel. I understand that there are guardrails that we have to put up in our lives. I understand that there are standards that we will abide by to keep ourselves from falling into the snares of temptation and making a shipwreck of our of our Christian testimony and lives. But the fact of the matter is we don't go isolate ourselves off in some community somewhere where the only people we deal with are Christians. The only people we deal with are people who are born again. But sometimes we can do that unwittingly. Sometimes we can do that unwittingly. Many times within within a three year period of time, people who are saved within three years don't know any more people who need the Lord. They don't know, they, they don't have any close contact with people who need to be saved. And so, I mean, sometimes people say, hey, I have a Christian barber. Hey, I have a Christian guy preparing my taxes. Hey, we bought our car from a Christian used car. Okay, I'm backing up here. But um, oh, there, there are wonderful, godly Christian used car salesmen. There are wonderful, godly Christian people in, in, in politics at times and, and in the military and all sorts of places. And what we do is we isolate ourselves. I remember when I was pastoring in Moreno Valley, the place was, was about like what you see around your church. Houses being built and pe people just coming in from everywhere. And I remember one of our families, they came and said, hey, pastor, got some good news. Oh, what's that? Hey, we just found out the people moving in next to us, they're Christians. I said, oh, that's too bad. They said, no, we said they're Christians. I said, oh, that's too bad. They said, why? I said, well, we were hoping the Lord would trust you enough to move some people in next to you who didn't know, who didn't know the Lord. 
so that you could show them what Christian living is like and you know, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. They said, well, pastor, you are so negative. But you know, this is, this is God's plan. This is how he makes himself discoverable through us, through the relationships that we have before men. When I was 15, I, was, I, I recommitted my life to Christ and I decided I wanted to memorize scripture. So I started with the 23rd Psalm. That was pretty, pretty familiar already. And then, and then I thought, I want to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I started with the Beatitudes, and I thought, I want to go beyond that. I want to go beyond. I want to go. And so I tell you, that'll do something in the heart and mind of a 15-year-old boy memorizing the, the Sermon on the Mount. Then I remember at nighttime, my dad, he'd come in, he'd come in the room. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd be in bed. He'd, uh, he would uh, wish me a you know, good night's rest and all. We'd talk a little bit. And then he'd turn off the light. He'd close the door, and he'd leave, assuming I was asleep. What I would do. I would grab my Bible, I would grab a flashlight, and I would memorize the Sermon on the Mount. I know, what a rebel, right? What a rebel. You're supposed to be in bed, your dad's expecting you to be asleep, and here you are, you disrespectful, disobedient rebel. Here you are memorizing the Bible. But I'm thinking, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Going to come and say, hey, 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 what are you doing? Memorizing scripture. Yo, yeah, well, okay. I don't know what they're going to do. So I'm memorizing it. And you get to chapter 6, and there are all these warnings in chapter 6. Don't pray to be seen of men. Okay. You know, don't give your alms to be seen of men. Okay. Don't fast to be seen of men. Okay. And then you come to Matthew 5, 16. I mean, here it says, you know, let your light so shine before men. Wait a minute here. It could be a little confusing. Well, you know, the Pharisees, they would fast, they would give, they would pray to be seen of men, to get the applause of men, to get the pat on the back from men, to get the praise from men. It was as though they were saying, look at me, look at me, I'm praying, I know how to pray, look at me. Look at me, I'm giving alms, look how generous I am, I'm giving alms to the poor, giving alms to the poor. Look at me, I'm fasting, oh, look at me, I'm so, I'm so hungry, I'm fasting, I'm so spiritual. But in Matthew 5, 16, it's not, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's, look at my Savior. Look at my God. Look how wonderful of a God I serve. Look at the God who satisfies. Look at the God who gives me peace in the midst of turmoil. Look at the God who, who gives me grace. Look at the God who restores. Look at the God who redeems. Let your light so shine be for men. That's the place before men. The place before men. The place before men. Would you say that with me? The place before men. One more time. The place before men. Okay, once more. The place before men. All right. That's the place. What's the process that God wants to use to make himself discoverable? Well, it's right there in the text, isn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. The process is good works. How is God going to make himself discoverable? Through good works. The process, good works. And so what is a good work? Well, a good work is something that makes somebody else's life a little easier. 
A good work is something that is, is a blessing to somebody else. A good work is something that helps shoulder the burden with somebody else. Well, the greatest work of all is, to, of course, is, of course, to give to somebody the gospel, to let them know what God has done to reconcile sinful man to a loving God. And so a good work can be defined as anything that's a blessing to somebody else. And it could be incidental, it could be monumental, and anywhere in between. I mean, just a smile, just a good word. Just an encouraging word. You see a child in the grocery store that immediately obeys their parent. Man, that is an obedient child. I don't think a parent's going to get offended. Mind your own business. I don't think a parent's going to get offended by that. Man, your child is so obedient. Hey, young man, that was great. You obeyed your mom the first time. And look, you had such a great attitude. Hey, you're helping your mom grocery shop. That's wonderful. You're putting the items in the cart. That's great. Helping carrying the groceries in, wonderful. All those encouragement, those are, sometimes it's just a smile. But you know, I am so often in my own world, I don't think about how I'm coming across to others. And I realize, well, I have enough to worry about without thinking about how I'm coming across to others. Now you're just weighing me down. Look, this is just something simple. Even a simple smile. One day we're going to church. And so, well, we go to church, you know, all the time. But on this particular day, I don't want you to think, oh, one day you went to church, what? You don't go to church? Um, so one day we're on the way to church. The family's in the car. We get stopped at the traffic light, the traffic light. And as I stop at this traffic light, I notice we're, we're dressed for church on our way to church. Other people are dressed for church on the way to church. Not our church, but other people dressed. And nobody's happy. Nobody looks like they have joy unspeakable and full of glory. We all have what we call our default faces. That's the face we go to by default. And generally, it's not very pretty. It's kind of sour. My default face looks like I'm a little angry. Like somebody took my parking place or something. A little angry. And I have to work on that. I have to work on smiling. I have to work on looking, looking like I have the Lord in my heart which I do. I have to work on it. And so I'm at the grocery store, Stater Brothers up in beautiful Yucca Valley, 19-year-old cashier. I'm an older guy. 19-year-old cashier says, hey, cheer up, sir. Things could be worse. I said, I will have you know I am a happy person. I have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And here's a track because I know you want what I've got. (laughs) But we do that. But a good word could just be a smile. Just an encouraging word to somebody. Again, it can also be something magnificent, something big, something, uh, something monumental and anywhere in between. But God wants to make himself discoverable through those things. So the the place is before men. The process is good works. The process, good works. The process, good works. Say those four words with me. The process, good works. Again, the process, good works. So we have simply the place before men. The process, good works. And then the purpose. And here's where I get a little uh, uh, dangerous in my thinking sometimes. Because I many times think if I know a verse, I know a verse. I know a verse. I'm familiar with it, and I'm familiar with Matthew 5, 16. And so when a preacher turns to Matthew 5, 16, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I got this verse. I can kind of half-heartedly listen. 
I can kind of listen with just half an ear, thinking about lunch as well, multitasking. Because this verse at the end says, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And if you've been around spiritual things for a while, and if you've been in this church for a while, you know one of the purposes for us being created is to glorify God. I'll never forget when that dawned on me, my dad was doing family devotions. We had a hi-fi, not Wi-Fi, hi-fi stereo in the living room in a beautiful wood cabinet. And some of you will have to have explained to you what that is. And this thing had a turntable, a spindle up through the center of the turntable that would hold a series of vinyl albums. And you put the little arm over the stack albums on the spindle, you turn a little knob, and one of those vinyl albums, like magic, would drop onto the turntable. And then the arm with the needle would come over. I'll never forget family devotions this day. My dad had a work booklet and a record on the hi-fi. And it went like this. That's how it started. Why are we created? Why is it that God didn't take us to heaven the moment we got saved? What is our purpose for living? And I think, yeah, what is it? What is it? And then he made it very clear through Scripture. We were made to glorify God. And there are lots of verses that teach that. But this is not one of them. Look at it again as I read it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I mean, there are plenty of verses that teach that as a believer, I'm supposed to glorify my Father which is in heaven. But this verse is teaching that those who see the good works, that they might glorify my Father which is in heaven. That they might glorify my Father which is in heaven. Now, what does it mean then to glorify God? To glorify God means to make much of God. To make much of God. To, to understand that he carries weight in my life, that he is weighty. And many times when the psalmist says, great is the Lord, that's what he's talking about. That God throws his weight around in my life, that he is weighty in my life. That what he says matters to me, that what he wants matters to me, what he desires matters to me, what he commands matters to me, what he forbids matters to me. To, to, to make great things of God. To, but to also glorify God means not only to make much of God, but it also means to put his character on display. But in this instance, the emphasis seems to be to make much of God. So I'm to put my, I'm to, before men, do good works that they might glorify my Father, that they might make much of my God. I'm to bring God close to them. I'm to make God discoverable so that any inkling of discovery gives them the opportunity to make much of my God. So the purpose is God's glory. The purpose is God's glory. The purpose, God's glory. The purpose, God's glory. Say that with me. The purpose, God's glory. Again, the purpose, God's glory. So we have, we have the process Excuse me, the, the place before men, process, good works, purpose, God's glory. Now, today when you're driving home from church, you may have your children in the car. And you're going to ask them, what did you learn in church? 
because we did that with our kids. And if they weren't paying attention, because sometimes my kids wouldn't pay attention, they'd say, we learn the Bible. What'd you learn in the Bible? Uh, we learn about the Lord. What'd you learn about the Lord? Uh, that He loves us. Okay. But you know, after a while, after making them squirm a little bit during the debrief, they learn, hey, hey Dad, what'd you learn in church today? The Bible. <laughs> Today we're going to be able to tell them, you know? Hey, we learned that the place before men, the process good works, the purpose God's glory, we're to make God discoverable. So when somebody makes much of God, what does that mean? If you are in a workplace for any length of time, it's almost like a family. If you're in a classroom with, with other students in, the, in a very short period of time, it's almost like a family. You say, what do you mean? I mean, everybody knows everything about everybody. There are no secrets. They know the struggles that you have. They know the setbacks that you have. And what an opportunity that is to make God discoverable. That they would say, you know, we know, we know the difficulty you're facing and you're still, still cheerful and faithful. Your God must be amazing. You know, you're a generous person. Your God must be generous. You're long-suffering. Your God must be long-suffering. I mean, sometimes, sometimes in some places people know to walk on eggshells until the first cup of coffee has been devoured. Well, once that cup of coffee's done, okay, everything's good. And sometimes that's what, we, you know, hey, is, is, is the God that you serve, is he like that? Like, does he need a cup of coffee in the morning before he's all happy and everything? But we make God discoverable through good works. And I, um, so that they might, so that they might glorify him, so that they might make much of our God. Your God must be merciful because you're merciful. Hey, we know the grief that you're going through through your loss. Your God must be satisfying. Your God must be gracious because you're gracious. Your God must be compassionate because you're compassionate. Your God must be merciful because you're always cutting me slack. Your God must be forgiving because you're forgiving. I have a friend of mine who, when I first met him, he made it very clear he was an atheist. He was an atheist. And I met him through the, uh, through the illusionary arts and things that he told me he was an atheist. And when, we, when our son went home to be with the Lord, we, didn't, we determined at the time, we're not going to ask why. Why us? And sometimes we do that. That's the first question we ask. When we've been betrayed, when we are bereaved, why us? And there are no sufficient answers. My heart's so perverse that if God told me why, I could give him 50 other ways he could have accomplished the same thing. See, that's how, how finite and weak and twisted my heart is to think I could give, give God counsel. So we determined as a family we're not going to ask why this happened. Instead, Lord, what would you like us to do with this? 
We have people that we love that, want, that we want them to know the Savior. So let's give them a front row seat to the graciousness of our God, to the satisfaction of our God. Let's give them, let's give them a front row seat to the hope that we have in our God, that our God keeps his word, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And my, my, a friend of mine who, who, I mean, he announced himself, he's an atheist, and even though we would talk about things and he knows the gospel, he knows the gospel very well. After a year or so, he said, you know, there must be a God. To see how we strengthen y'all, there must be a God. Now the thing is for my friend to get to know him. Sometimes we think, why are there dark times? Why can't everything just be sunshine and, and calm weather and all of that? Because God wants to make himself discoverable. And many times it's through those dark times, through the difficulties. And so God's desire is the place is before men. The process, good works. The, the, the purpose, God's glory even a small thing. Can a small thing really make that big of a difference in somebody's life? Can some small gesture actually uh, bring somebody closer to the Lord in some way? Boy, it sure can. I think we've all heard the story of Carol, although we may not remember her, 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 uh, the exact details or her last name, but Carol went to her favorite drive-up coffee shop one day. And she went up to the coffee shop window to pay for her order. She went to hand the money to the bistro there. Bistro, bistro, that's something different. To the barista, barista. The coffee clerk. <laughs> and the lady said, oh, um, you don't need to pay for your order today. Carol said, why not? She said, the, guy, the gentleman in front of you paid for it. She said, why would he do that? She said, he just wanted to pay it forward. Do something nice for you. Carol got to thinking, oh, that's a good idea. Well, I want to do that. So she looked in the rearview mirror to see if the person behind her was worthy of a free cup of coffee. It was a blonde lady sitting in a red convertible. Jewelry gleaming in the sunlight. She said, she said to herself, that lady should buy me a cup of coffee. But the, you know, the promptings of the Holy Spirit are at times relentless. So she said, you know what, let me pay for the order behind me. And so she paid for the order that was behind her. She had a few errands to run. She pulls into a parking spot, needs to go to some stores right there by the coffee place. And she's coming back to her car, arms full of goods, going to put them in the trunk. And there parked next to her car is the red convertible. Standing beside the red convertible is the blonde lady with the jewelry gleaming in the sunlight. Carol goes to put her stuff in the trunk. The blonde lady says, hey, uh, I just want to say thank you for buying me a cup of coffee this morning. Carol said, glad to do it <laughs> with that, that guilt because she really wasn't all that glad. <laughs> just paying it forward. The lady said, you don't understand. You don't understand what that meant to me this morning. She began to explain how that she and her husband had gone through a betrayal with a business partner. They were most likely going to be facing bankruptcy. She mentioned in addition to that, in addition to all of that turmoil and uncertainty, her son in his 30s had succumbed to cancer. 
And she was wondering that morning, does God really care? Is he really there? Does he really care? She says, and then he put it on the heart of a stranger to buy me a cup of coffee. And I'm sitting in line wondering, does God care for me and my husband and what we're going through? And I get up to the window and the barista says, the lady in front of you took care of your order today. You don't know what that cup of coffee meant to me. Well, Carol and her husband had gone through some turmoil as well. And so as far as their business was concerned, they had an opportunity to talk and Carol had an opportunity to steer that lady toward the wonderful God that allowed Carol to show some generosity. Yeah, just a small act. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. God is making himself discoverable, not just through general revelation or special revelation, but through relational revelation. He's making himself, himself discoverable through you and through me. He'll make himself discoverable through, the rest, through you at the restaurant to the server that you'll have after church if you're going to a restaurant. He'll make himself discoverable through you to the clerk if you go buy some groceries after church. Then making the grocery list. I know I do sometimes. And so God is making himself discoverable. Small gestures. Josh writes about a time he was in the third grade. He's now a grown man. He's a journalist, a uh, conservative guy. And he, but when he, when he was in the third grade, there was a turning point, a turning point in the third grade. He had been to the principal's office seven times. Excuse me, seven times. A third grader, seven times. Oh, this kid's going to be trouble. He said, I, I tried to be good, but I just, I just couldn't. There was a girl I liked on the bus. I pulled her braid. She cried. I wound up in the principal's office. And, it, and he said, and it wasn't that Mr. Kincaid, he still remembered the principal's name. It wasn't that Mr. Kincaid spanked hard. Oh, okay, so it was back in those days. He said, it wasn't that he spanked hard. It was just that I was heartbroken that I had disappointed this man that I had so much respect for. I just didn't want to disappoint him. He said, one day I'm sitting in math class. I'm working on a problem. And the teacher says, Josh, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, the principal needs to see you now. He said, me? She said, yes, now. I'm thinking, what have I done? All the way down the hallway, the longest walk of my life. What have I done? I'm thinking of things. I'm making things up now. I'm just making things up to, just to make things right somehow. He gets into the principal's office. The principal says, Joshua, have a seat. He says, I've been talking to your teacher. Joshua's thinking, oh, no. And she tells me, you've been really doing a good job at behaving lately. He said, me? <laughs> he said, yes, you. And I just brought you up here to let you know how proud I am of you. And I want to encourage you to keep up the good work. On the principal's desk was a big old jar of peppermint candies. He opened up the jar, pulled one out, closed the jar, put one in Joshua's hand. Man, he held that like it was a gold coin. He said, now go back to your class. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation back in class? Hey, Josh, what happened? What'd you get in trouble for now? Nothing. Principal Kincaid just wanted to let me know how proud he is of me. Later on that day, Josh recognized and realized 
there was a conversation that had taken place out of his absence between a teacher who recognized his good behavior and a principal who was interested. That was a turning point for Joshua. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. God's making himself known through general revelation, special revelation, but he especially is making himself discoverable through relational revelation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the local church. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. And as we gather together in the name of Jesus, he promises to be in our midst. I trust that we have sensed his presence once again here in this place. And not only may we sense his presence, but may we also have ears attuned to his voice and to his leading and to his guiding. And oh, dear Lord, maybe today would be the day of a fresh commitment that says, you know, I need to be more cognizant. I need to be more aware of the people around me. Well, I've always made it about me and I just need to make it about God and make him self-discoverable. Maybe I need to change my expressions. Maybe I need to change my, my actions. Maybe I need to change my focus. I pray, Lord, today might be a day where we would just refresh that commitment that says, I want people to know my God. I, I want him to be discoverable through my life, through my testimony, through my speech, through my attitudes, through my actions, even my countenance. Lord, maybe today would be the day that somebody would come to know Jesus as Savior. No doubt there have been people surrounding such a one who have been making God discoverable and they want to know this same God in the same way and that would be through the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the family across the street that made you discoverable to my family. Thank you, Lord, for Shirley and thank you, Lord, for Ron. Thank you that they constantly, constantly brought you close to us brought you within our household, brought you within our, our view. Thank you that they lived Christianity before us. Lord, may we do the same. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. How many of you would say, I have this testimony, I have this testimony. I know Jesus is my Savior. If I were to die today, I know I'd go to heaven. I have received Christ as my Savior. If that's your testimony, would you slip your hand up? Put it up high. I am a saved person. That's what you'd say. Thank you so much. You could put your hands down. Maybe you weren't able to raise your hand. Thank you for being honest with us. Maybe you weren't able to raise your hand, but I hope that you would have the desire to know Christ is your Savior. In fact, I believe there'd be someone under the sound of our voice that would have that desire. I can't help but believe that once you come in contact with this wonderful God, that you'd have a desire to be right with Him. And that's, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died, was buried, and rose again so that you and I could have our sins forgiven, so that we could be made right with this God who loves us so much. If you're here today, you'd say, you know, the next thing I need to do is receive Christ as my Savior. Why, the next thing I need to do is call upon Jesus to save me from my sins. I'd sure like to pray for you. Well, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you'd like that, if you'd like for someone to be praying for you, because you need to trust Christ as your Savior, would you just slip your hand right up, put it right back down, I'll see that. I'll just recognize that. Thank you. Somebody else? Somebody else? I just can't help but believe that folks who have come in contact with this God would, would want to know Him even better. Somebody else says, you know, that's the next thing I need to do. I need to be saved. I need to trust Christ as my Savior. All right, I'll pray for you in just a moment. 
For those of us that know the Savior, isn't this an exciting adventure to look for ways to make God discoverable wherever we go? What an adventure. What a ride. What a mission. What an opportunity. May God refresh our passion for that very thing. Father, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And Lord, I pray that we'll do something with the word we've heard this morning, as we've done many times before. The Lord, today, it might be a fresh commitment. Lord, I want you to be discoverable through me. Maybe that's what we would pray. Lord, I want you to be discoverable through me. Lord, give me wisdom, open my eyes, give me insight, give me discernment as to how I could help somebody else's life be better. Give me wisdom as to how I can be a blessing to somebody else in Jesus' name. Help me, Lord, to, to have my eyes and awareness open so that I can display your character. How, oh, Lord, there are times when we need to be firm. There are times when an injustice has occurred towards somebody else and we need to take a, a firm stand with the right spirit regarding that injustice. But Lord, there are also times when we need to be gracious. There are times when we need to be long-suffering. Times when we need to cut some people some slack. We need to be merciful. There are times when we need to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and help somebody in need. So Lord, give us wisdom and discernment so that we can bring you close to people as you desire for us to make you discoverable. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Hey, let's stand together and as we sing, we're going to sing, I have surrendered all. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. And maybe right where you are, you'd maybe bow your head and talk to the Lord about making Him discoverable. Maybe this morning you need Christ as your Savior. Maybe you raised your hand, we prayed for you. We want you to be saved this morning. We want you to come to know Christ as your Savior. So as we sing this song, Christian friend, if God's speaking to your heart, I invite you to come and uh, come and uh, kneel at the altar and do business with God. If you've got a burden on your heart that you just need God to lighten, you can bring that to him as well. But if you need Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you as well to slip to the nearest aisle and to come and meet with one of the men on staff here with Pastor. And they'll take a Bible and show you how you can know that you know that you know that your sins are forgiven that Christ is your Savior. As we sing, I invite you to come.